in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. So I invite you to turn with me there. And if you're able, please stand with me as I read from the Word of God. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spoken, by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Well, in 2021, an Olympian almost missed his important 110-meter hurdles event because he was traveling to the wrong arena. On the day of, his, of this athlete's race, he took the wrong bus and it seems that he was distracted and while on the bus, he was listening to music, perhaps trying to focus for his event, until he looked up and he realized he was on the wrong bus. He was going the wrong way. Well, of course, he got off the bus, yet he was lost in a different country and he was running out of time. Well, imagine for a second the worry and the trouble this Olympian may have felt at this moment. Would he make it to this very important day? Imagine the consequences of missing the event. Imagine the shame, the embarrassment, the sadness, the disappointment. The day of anticipation had finally arrived for this Olympian, but would he be able to take part in his event? Or would he miss the very thing he was preparing for and looking forward to for his whole life? Doubt, anxiety, worry, fear may have been present in this Olympian's heart. Well, every one of us should understand what it means to have an important day coming up. Whether it's a job interview, your upcoming marriage, the birth of your first child, or an upcoming scheduled surgery. The consequences of not being prepared, the consequences of not making it, of not being able to take part in that big day would be devastating, wouldn't it? Well, the Thessalonians, like us in our passage today, knew that a big day was coming. But it was a much bigger day than this Olympian or any of the days that we anticipate in this world. But it was an anticipation for the day of the Lord. Yet in our passage, they lost their marbles. They lost their footing because they fell into some sort of false teaching or notion that the day of the Lord, that this important day has already come or that it was imminent, about to come. 
they were deceived into thinking that the very end of the age, the return of Christ, had basically fallen upon them or was at hand. Yet imagine the terror and worry of believing in this type of false notion. For example, say you're engaged to be married, that your ceremony is scheduled for much later, yet your friend comes up to you and tells you your wedding is happening today, that your bride is about to walk down the aisle to meet you, and for some reason you believe this, well, of course, you'd be, you'd be in a frenzy, wouldn't you? Well, likely in a much greater way, the Thessalonians believed in something outrageous. They believed in a lie or in a misinterpretation about the day of the Lord. They may have thought that the Lord Jesus was here already or that he was about to be here on earth to meet them. It was time for the end. And in light of this false notion regarding the day of the Lord, Paul tries to set the Thessalonians straight, to comfort them and to assure them of the truth. Yet this, from this passage, we can also apply his words to our own lives, to stand firm and to not be shaken when false teaching comes. In particular, we ought to stand firm against deception. We should stand firm in the truth and stand firm with Christ. If you want a broad main point of this sermon today, it is this stand firm in the truth and take comfort in the fact that the day of the Lord is not yet at hand. Indeed, they won't miss Christ. They won't be forsaken. And Paul makes this clear from his entire letter. This brings us now to our first point. And in verses 1 to 4, we as believers need to stand firm against deception. A popular slogan today is, we're here for a good time, not a long time. Well, these Thessalonians knew that they weren't going to be on earth for a long time, but they were having a difficult time nonetheless. They were being persecuted for the faith, they were confused about the second coming of Christ, and they were being misled by false teaching or by false interpretations. Well, Paul, in verse 1, again writes about the end, yet here he pleads with his brothers to not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed about the coming of Christ and of them being gathered together to him. Well, I believe a natural reading of verse 1 is that this coming of the Lord and our being gathered are linked together as perhaps the same event or as closely linked, closely related. We seem to get hints of this in other parts of First and Second Thessalonians. And in First Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17, we see that Christ will descend from heaven and that believers will be caught up together to meet the Lord, it says. Similarly, in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, we see at Christ's return the condemnation of unbelievers, and we also see that Christ will be glorified in his saints. When Christ returns, he will indeed bring judgment upon unbelievers, but he will also bring great comfort to his people. They will see him and be with him. And this was, I believe, all part of the day of the Lord. While good Christians may differ on the timing of all these events, there is room for that. Clearly, Paul here has connected or is connecting these three things together in some way, namely the coming of Christ, the gathering of his people to him, and the day of the Lord together in verses 1 to 2. The coming of Christ means both judgment and comfort for Christ's people, but so does the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in Scripture points to a day of darkness and a day of judgment. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly sudden destruction will come upon them. And Amos 5.18 says, or calls this day, a day of darkness. 
Therefore, this coming of Christ, the being gathered together to him and the day of the Lord are all connected in some way. Paul was not disconnecting the three of these things. And in regards to this day of the Lord, the day of salvation and condemnation, the Thessalonians were confused. They were shaken in mind and alarmed, as verse 2 says. Shaken in mind, as others note here, doesn't refer to emotional turmoil, but to, the word shaken can mean to be made to waver, for example. And here, to be unstable in opinions and understanding. However, the word alarmed here does in fact refer to emotional instability. The word alarm points to being disturbed or frightened. It can be translated as troubled. So two things were happening in their inner lives. Their understanding and opinion was wavering, they were being deceived, and they were also in emotional distress. But why was this so? Well, they were shaken in mind and alarmed because, like I said, of some type of false teaching or false interpretation of Scripture. The source of this falsehood is not known by Paul. This is why he lists various possibilities when he says to not be shaken or alarmed by either a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from them. All we know was that error and false understanding about the day of the Lord had creeped in into the minds and hearts of these believers. Commentators dif differ on whether or not the Thessalonians thought the day of the Lord was literally already present or if his coming, coming was imminent, that is, about to come. Uh, the more common reading is that they believe that the day of the Lord was already here, as our ESV translates. But what exactly were they so distressed about? Why were they so troubled? So what if Christ was here or, or almost here? Isn't that a good thing? Well, it seems that the issue is more so in regards to their assurance, as others suggest. For example, they should have understood that judgment was tied to the day of the Lord, and for some reason, they may have been concerned about not being able to escape that judgment. They weren't sure if they would get to participate in glory. Will I make it? Will I be saved? Will I be ready for Christ? Or perhaps if they believed Jesus was already literally there, well, maybe they feared that they, would, they were left behind. Okay, Jesus is here, but how come I haven't been gathered to him yet? How come I don't see him? Where is he? It's difficult to understand exactly what their view of the end was at this point, but they were troubled and their understanding was shaken, and they believed that the day of the Lord had arrived, or it was imminent, and they weren't confident about their salvation at Christ's coming. Well, thankfully, Paul doesn't want them to be deceived, and he doesn't want us to be deceived, as we see in verse 3. And the reason he gives is that the day, in fact, was not here. It would not come, as he says in verse 3, unless the rebellion comes first the man of lawlessness, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That is the son of destruction. Well, the day of the Lord will one day come, brothers and sisters, and it will come suddenly, but it won't be a surprise to believers. Paul points to specific events that will happen before that day comes, and this is now where we focus. First, there will be a rebellion. That is, as you can translate, an apostasy. People will rebel against God and fall away from and abandon the faith. Matthew 24, 11, 13 says this, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, he says. Well, this doesn't mean that true Christians can lose their faith, but that there will be a time in which many will be deceived. Perhaps people who grew up in the church 
who grew up in Christian homes and families, perhaps those who made professions of faith, yet never truly held fast to Christ. We see this all the time already, people who claim to be believers, yet to fall away later on in life, showing that they may have never truly been Christian in the first place. The point here, as one author says, is that there will be some sort of rebellion which will be a sign of the end. And furthermore, as we read on, it's not just a rebellion or apostasy that will occur before this day of the Lord, but there will be this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, this ultimate antichrist to come. Indeed, there have been many antichrists today, meaning people who are opposed to Christ. We see this in 1 John and even today with the rise of various false religions and prophets. But there is coming a day where a specific and known man of lawlessness will be revealed, an ultimate antichrist before the day of the Lord. 1 John 3, 4 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Well, this man will indeed be one who practices sin. He is lawless in disposition and deeds, and lawless here, lawlessness here is not restricted to, to to the Mosaic law, but it broadly means the refusal to submit to God and refusing to acknowledge God as God. Lawless, therefore, can mean without the law or against the law, which is likely true, but it is also synonymous for sin and iniquity. This man is a man of iniquity, in other words. In fact, in verse 4, we see that he will oppose and exalt himself against every God and object of worship. He will go against every religion and every idol. Yet as verse 4 says, he will take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There isn't much consensus on what the temple of God refers to, but we can know that this man exalts himself and makes himself to be God. He is indeed arrogant. He, he may establish his own type of cult and expects that people will honor him alone. In a sense, it seems, he may also be successful for a time. He will have a type of satanic power, and we will talk about that a little later. However, if we jump back now to verse 3, we see that he is also called the son of destruction. This is the same title, actually, that Judas is given in John 17, 12, which points not so much to how this man of lawlessness will cause a lot of destruction, but many understand that he is actually bound for destruction. That's what it means here. The term destruction points to how God will destroy all who oppose him. So even here in our first point, we see a type of hope, don't we? And throughout this book, there is a great hope for believers, for God's people, no matter how difficult things may get. Well, in application, especially in light of the coming man of lawlessness, we as believers must stand firm against deception. The Thessalonians were deceived a thousand years ago, and today many are deceived into all sorts of satanic and false understandings, whether that be illogical superstition, false religions and cults, or ultimate allegiance to world leaders. Don't be quickly shaken in mind. If someone comes to you and says something contradictory to scripture and to the truth, don't give in and don't be deceived. In my first year of undergrad, I met a man who seemed to be a sincere and kind Christian. He was in my small group, and today he has abandoned the faith and fallen prey to the errors of Catholicism. Rob Bell, a once well-known evangelical speaker and leader, fell prey to the idea that hell doesn't exist and that love wins. 
Many today fall prey to the idea that the gospel brings health, wealth, and success in, in this life if you have faith. Others use scripture to show that living a homosexual lifestyle is permitted. In the past, people used the Bible to justify unethical slavery. Deception is everywhere. It's on billboards, it's on commercials, it's, it's even in many so-called churches today. So stand firm. Don't be shaken in mind. Don't be deceived by false teaching and false interpretations that sound new and exciting. Is this not what happened to the Thessalonian, Thessalonian church over such an obvious topic? Of course, Christ wasn't there yet. Of course, they weren't at the very end of the age. But strange teaching and strange interpretations caused their minds and their understandings to waver for some reason. So therefore, brothers, we can learn from them. Stick to what you know from Scripture. Evaluate every word and every idea with Scripture itself. If you go to Valley Fair and the mother of God, God cult approaches you, will you be able to stand firm and not be deceived? If someone comes into RBF spewing heresy and false teaching, will you be able to recognize it? If someone tells you that you're saved by works and by deeds, will you fall prey? You might think this is silly and that you never fall for something like that, but you see, the Thessalonians fell for something silly in a sense. So we can learn from them and work to stand firm against deceit. And indeed, we do need to stand firm against deception. And secondly, we need to stand firm in the truth in verses 5 to 9. In verse 3, we see that Paul tells these believers to not be deceived in any way. And now in verse 5, Paul says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? We don't have the accounts of every word spoken by Paul to the Thessalonians, but we can know that he points them back to the apostolic teaching he once shared with them. They shouldn't have been deceived because they knew better, because they were taught better by Paul himself. But somewhere down the line, perhaps they forgot or they stopped taking his words to heart. Well, as we continue on, we indeed know that Paul's words to them were not meant to bring them distress. And in light of Paul's words, for example, in 1 Thessalonians, the day of the Lord was not going to be a surprise for believers. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 to 5 says this, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, he said. Paul also says earlier in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul has already given them a lot of understanding in both writing and perhaps personally. They should have known that they were safe and secure in Christ. They, they should have known that they were saved, but still they, they fell into being deceived. But you see, many of us are not too different, again, from these Thessalonians. How many times have we forgotten biblical truths? How many times have we not taken God's word and truth to heart, especially in seasons of difficulty and uncertainty? The Thessalonians were going through a difficult time with persecution, and perhaps their suffering tempted them to believe these false truths about the day of the Lord. Maybe the day of the Lord has come because we're suffering so much. They, they saw their suffering as a sign of the judgment of God, perhaps. Well, what, what must we do in both the good and bad seasons of life, brothers and sisters? We must remember, we must stand firm in the truth, 
in, in the truth we've learned from Scripture. Don't forget the faithful teaching of Scripture. Indeed, that is one way we stand firm against deception, by remembering, isn't it? In days of anxiety, remember that the Lord cares for you and knows your every need. In days of uncertainty, know that the Lord is working for your good. In days of loss, know that in the Lord you are rich and that one day you will inherit the kingdom. Know that he hears your every prayer and he sees your every tear that falls from your eyes. Remember that the Lord is with you and remember his truth in every season of life. Now in our passage, starting in verse 6 again, Paul appeals to what they already know now, to this man of lawlessness. And he reminds them. In verse 6, Paul says that they know what is restraining him and the purpose of this restraining, which was to be revealed in his time. In other words, the day of the Lord, therefore, has not come since the man of lawlessness is still being restrained at the moment. And in verse 7, Paul expands once again on this man of lawlessness and on how he is being restrained. He says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now, this is a bit of a tricky sentence. Though Paul may have once told the Thessalonians information pertaining to the man of lawlessness, we as readers don't know exactly all that he said. So we have to try and piece it together. First, let's begin with the second half of verse 7. Here we can understand that this man of lawlessness is indeed being restrained. He is not currently here in its full power, nor has he been, has he been fully revealed. Yet we can infer that this restrainer seems to be perhaps some sort of being or person, as Paul says, he now restrains. Paul says in verse 7, he who now restrains. There are several theories on who this restrainer is. Perhaps it is God himself or the angel Michael. One understanding is that this restrainer is actually satanic rather than God himself, and, this, and that this satanic or demonically possessed person is working as a precursor to the man of lawlessness. This person or being will restrain the man of lawlessness until he is out of the way. He himself is out of the way. I don't think we can know for sure who Paul has in mind, but we can know that this man of lawlessness is currently being restrained at the moment. But before you give a sigh of relief, take a look at the beginning of verse 7 now. In verse 7, Paul also explains that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Well, mystery here refers to that which is secret. It can even point to secret teachings and secret rites or rituals. In fact, religious cults were common during this time and was something Paul likely had in mind. And furthermore, mystery here refers to an evil and satanic power. Jewish literature referred to the mysterious plots or schemes of Satan. Therefore, lawlessness, satanic activity was at work in Paul's day, and even now, brothers and sisters, we can know that it continues to work. Today, there are probably countless cults with secret and abominable practices. We can know that secret or mysterious satanic activity is working throughout the world. And as one commentator explains, we can even consider how many unbelievers participate in lawlessness, in sin, or in satanic activity that they themselves are unaware of. They don't believe the things they partake in are demonic or lawless. Their eyes may be blind to the truth and to their own evil deeds. And even for believers, we cannot know or recognize every satanic cult or activity. Satan is powerful, isn't he? 
First Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Second John 1, 7 says, for many deceivers have gone in, out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Well, brothers and sisters, isn't this even more reason now to stand firm? to not fall into deception, to not forget the truth of God and his word. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Verse 9 says that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Lawlessness and the working of sin does not, however, only begin with the, with the final antichrist, but it is present now. It's present now. So friends, what can we do then but to hold fast to our Bibles? Hold fast to scripture. What can we do but to cry out to God to keep us faithful and immovable? Plead with God to give us eyes and minds to discern truth and error. And may we plead with God to open the eyes and hearts of our unbelieving friends and family to their own sin and lawlessness and to the gospel. Indeed, lawlessness is at work now, and even lawlessness and sin that is hidden and not understood by us. Yet, consider this. In verse 7 and 8, we see that the man of lawlessness will one day be released. It's not just bad now, brothers and sisters, but it seems safe to say that it may get even worse for many. Sin and iniquity will only continue and perhaps grow in its influence. One day, this man of lawlessness will not be restrained, and those outside of Christ will be left defenseless. If you don't have Christ this morning, if you don't have his spirit, how will you withstand lawlessness now and even perhaps in the future when it may only get worse? How will you withstand the work of Satan? This is bad news if you are not a believer this morning. Will you do something about it? Won't you come to Christ today? And for believers in this room, well, we can take heart because this point does, does not end here, but the second half of verse 8 shows us something amazing, doesn't it, thankfully? It tells us that the lawless one will indeed be revealed, and Paul further explains that this lawless one will be killed by the Lord Jesus Christ with the breath of his mouth. That is, this lawless one will be destroyed by Christ's great power, as one author says. And not only that, Christ will bring him to nothing, which means to make him lose his power and effectiveness. He, he, and he does this simply by the appearance of his coming, doesn't he? Though the man of lawlessness may be powerful and, and influential, he is no match for the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, it will be obvious and it will be glorious as he brings forth his judgment and salvation and, and as he completely destroys this man of lawlessness. Is it not better then, friends, to be on Christ's side this morning? These truths were necessary for the Thessalonians, likely for their comfort and for their peace, and so it is for us. So brothers and sisters, take heart. Be comforted to know that the, this man of lawlessness is not ultimate. Satan's work is not ultimate. Jesus' work, his reign, his rule is ultimate and decisive. Paul reminds the Thessalonians of what they already know, and we too must not forget the truths of Scripture and what we know. This can apply to the gospel, it can apply to the coming of Christ, and it applies to our assurance and security in Christ. Don't be deceived by that which is false. Don't forget the truth. Stand firm in the truth. Know that you are safe and secure. 
Know that Christ will come and defeat Satan. For children in this room, try your best to remember all the truths from the Bible that your parents have taught you during your family worship devotions before bed. I hope that one day, for example, my own daughter will be able to grow up and remember much of the truth mom and dad tried to teach her from Scripture. I hope she will remember so that when she one day perhaps steps into that liberal college campus, that she won't be swept away by error and contradictions like so many have today. You guys need to remember. We need to remember. Parents, teach your children the Bible that they might remember God's word when they leave the home. Husbands, remind your wife about God's word so that they might continue to stand firm whether they are at home caring for the family or in the outside workforce so, they, that, so that they might not be tossed to and fro by every idea in this world. Remember, hold fast to the truth you know. Hold fast to the truth that you were taught. Remember. And this brings us now to verses 9 to 12. And one way we can apply this section now is to know that we ought to stand firm in Christ. We should stand firm in Christ. In verses 9 to 12, we see that Paul continues to speak and expand on this man of lawlessness to come. And furthermore, he, he here speaks of unbelievers who are perishing. This passage gets even more sober, a little bit more somber. Let's consider this first portion of verse 9. This verse makes it clear that this man of lawlessness comes by the activity or the working or the operation of Satan. You can understand the sentence like this. The coming of the lawless one is according to or in conformity with the work of Satan. Satan indeed is behind the appearing of this man of lawlessness, this great antichrist. This man of lawlessness is no weak figure as we see in verse 9. And we see that he comes according to the work of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, it says. This indeed is a bit frightening. This antichrist will be powerful and he will perform signs and wonders. Signs here can be understood as evidence of the na nature of the one who performs it. It can point back to him. Perhaps these signs will win unbelievers over to the person of the antichrist as they see these great signs. And wonders here can relate to that which is terrible and astounding. Paul does say that these signs and wonders are false and but false here doesn't necessarily mean fake, but more so in this context as deceptive or as lies. Again, the person behind the man of lawlessness is who? It's Satan himself. And we can understand that his work can indeed be supernatural, even if it's not from God. So this power, these signs, and these wonders may indeed be amazing and miraculous, but it was meant to lead people astray. Isn't this what we see in verse 10 when it says, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing? This man of lawlessness comes with deception for unbelievers. And we can assume as he sits on his throne that he deceives unbelievers away from God and towards himself as a man of lawlessness. These unbelievers are described as those who are perishing. That is, those who are not saved but eternally lost, as one author says. And Paul, in verse 10, gives the reason for why they are perishing. It's because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. That's why unbelievers are perishing. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The truth here points to the gospel, not to something abstract. Yet increasing, interesting, interestingly, we see that unbelievers here refuse to love the gospel, 
which means, well, what does it mean that they didn't love the gospel? It means that they had no desire for it. They were indifferent to it. They were apathetic to it, perhaps. And it, it is tragic, isn't it? Saying whatever to something as glorious as salvation or redemption and forgiveness in Christ. Well, indeed, friends, this is tragic, but nevertheless, it is true. Apathy and even distaste can be a response for many to the gospel. We should not be surprised, yet it is their choice. And as commentators help us point out, unbelievers, the unsaved, cannot ultimately blame Satan or others for their rebellion and condemnation, but they can only blame themselves because they themselves refuse to love the truth. That is, in this context, to love the gospel and be saved. So, when an unbeliever goes to hell, it isn't because they were forced to go, but they chose the way of wickedness. They chose to live in sin and indeed choose to sin. They are not victims. We are all responsible for our own sin and wickedness. We are responsible when we reject the gospel. Unbelievers cannot blame their parents. They can't blame the church. They can't blame others. They can only blame themselves at the end of the day for their own condemnation. So to our unbelieving friends this morning, if you go on in unbelief forever, if you go on rejecting Christ and the gospel, or if you simply go on living in sin, then you yourself are to blame for your own condemnation. This is the hard truth. All who die outside of Christ will have to blame themselves. But friends, this does not, this does not have to be the case. Yes, there are people who will be condemned for refusing the gospel and for living in sin, but that does not have to be you this morning. Please consider this mighty king, Jesus Christ, who will destroy this antichrist one day, Satan himself without problem as well. God sent Jesus Christ not only to destroy the work of Satan, but to save sinful and once hell-bound people like you and me. Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, in a sense has already conquered Satan and death because he lived a perfect life and he died a sinner's death on our behalf on the cross. He died there to pay for our sin and punishment, yet he rose again three days later, conquering over sin and death. Those who trust in him can know life and not death. They can be forgiven of their sin. They can be saved. They can be safe and secure. They can be bound for glory without destruction. Condemnation does not have to be your final destination, friends. If only you would trust in Christ and turn from sin. Well, brothers and sisters, friends, as we continue on now to verse 11, we must understand that those who ultimately refuse the gospel, refuse the gospel and refuse salvation will indeed experience condemnation, and justly so. In fact, though I hope no one in this room will reject the gospel, we do know that many will and many have. And since people will refuse to love the truth and be saved, Paul says in verse 11 that God therefore sends unbelievers a strong delusion. Why? So that they may believe what is false. Again, God is not the evil one here, friends. He is holy and he does no wrong. So what is God doing here? Well. He is bringing judgment upon unbelievers for their sin and rebellion. Rebellion. He may even be giving unbelievers up to the deception that they themselves have fallen into and chosen. Again, unbelievers, the unsaved, are responsible for their own sin and condemnation. And here in verse 11, God is allowing and even causing them to be deceived and deluded. 
God purposes that these unbelievers believe in the lies and in what is false. Specifically, they will continue to believe against the gospel. They will continue to reject it. We see something similar even in Romans 1.25, which talks about those who exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And God gives them up to this, doesn't he? So those who refuse to love the gospel and be saved are handed over to God's judgment here. They are sent a strong delusion to continue to believe what is false, to continue to reject the gospel. And what's the purpose? Well, Paul says in verse 12, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Again, these unbelievers are not innocent people that God is sending his judgment upon for no reason. No, Paul shows that they are people who did not believe in the gospel and people who took pleasure in unrighteousness, in wickedness, in injustice. God's judgment is not unfair, but it is in reality actually very fair. He is just. Well, you might be thinking that this doesn't sound like much comfort here for me. It doesn't sound like much comfort for the Thessalonians, does it? It is indeed a difficult passage to highlight. However, one thing to remember is that the Thessalonians were under great persecution during this time. This means that this condemnation and judgment upon the unbelievers would include all the unbelieving leaders and people who persecuted the Thessalonians. Imagine, friends, being persecuted unjustly for being Christian all your life. Imagine losing all your money, all your rights, losing your job, and maybe even your family for being a Christian. Well, those who persecuted you will one day experience God's judgment and wrath, won't they? This was true for the Thessalonians, and this is true also for all persecuted believers today. God's justice is coming, and even now, God's give, God gives unbelievers what they deserve for their sin. He can keep them deceived and not open their eyes, and he can give them up to their unrighteousness. So, in this sense, Paul's words to the Thessalonians, though sober, though somber, could have brought relief for the Thessalonians and could remind them that God is just and fair. Well, brothers and sisters, it is not unjust of God to do this. Unbelievers and we ourselves are all responsible for our own sin and unrighteousness. None of us do what is right before God in, of, in and of ourselves. God giving unbelievers up to their sin and disbelief or giving judgment is a natural consequence. This is true throughout Scripture. And just one more passage, Psalm 81 says this, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. If this is your first time encountering these types of texts, I can understand why this would not be comforting. But you need to put yourself in the shoes of the Thessalonians and in the shoes of persecuted people, Christians. It is good to know that God does not sweep our sin under the rug. It is good to know that he does not let the unjust go free. He must punish sin for he is holy and he is God. If he didn't, he would not be worthy or upright himself. And lastly, consider how God is, yes, judge, just and will judge the unsaved. But don't ever forget that he has sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to be the savior of the world, to be our great redeemer. Though this passage highlights some difficult and serious truths, God's mercy and grace is still active today. After all, he saved many of you today, didn't he? He opened your eyes. He lifted you out of lies and out of deception. 
And again, to our unsafe friends this morning, condemnation does not have to be your fate. Believe in Christ while you still can. Believe in him now if you can, for tomorrow may be too late. You don't know when judgment will come upon you, so believe while you still can. If you take pleasure in unrighteousness, if you continue to do so without turning to God, then you need to understand what your fate will be. God does not lie. He makes it clear. This passage, then, is of no comfort for you if you're an unbeliever because of coming judgment. I had a youth say to me recently when I was talking about uh, uh, Christ's second coming, and he said that this text is so scary. It is scary if you are an unbeliever. But I'm not trying to scare you out of hell because that doesn't usually work. I want you to still, nevertheless, see the great Redeemer, Christ. I'm not trying to scare you with fire and brimstone, but we still preach hell, we we still preach its reality, but we also preach grace and we preach Christ. See the truth of hell and condemnation, but don't stop there. See the love of God. See Christ who offers, offers to free you from your sin by his blood because he loves you. Turn from your sin. And for believers in this room, once again, this passage, though also difficult, should be comforting. It should be comforting to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. It is comforting to know that he will conquer Satan, that he is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. The demonic realm, though maybe active right now, has no power ultimately over believers. You do not need to fear Satan. And furthermore, we know that God is still powerful and he can still open the eyes of the blind and he can still deliver people from great trouble and bring them safely home to glory. We see this later on in in the chapter in verse 14. He says this, To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers are safe and secure in Christ. They are called, they are kept, and they will obtain glory in Christ. Though we won't get to it today, this is one way Paul ultimately comforts the Thessalonians. He tries to remind them that they are saved, they will be saved, they will know glory. And that is true for all believers in this room today. Don't fear Satan, don't fear the end, because glory is coming for you. Christ is coming and he will redeem you once and for all. So hold fast to Christ's gospel this morning. Don't let it go. It's better to be on Christ's side. Stand firm in Christ. Stand firm against deception and stand firm in truth. There is no greater comfort than to be by Christ's side, to be safe and secure. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And though your word this morning is difficult to understand, and it is a somber passage, we ask that we would not neglect your word. Help us, God, as Christians, to be comforted by the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ will come again and defeat Satan and the man of lawlessness. Help us to be comforted to know that we as Christians are safe and secure and that you will never let us go. Help us not fall into error error like the Thessalonians or other people fall into. Help us to stand firm in the truth. Help us to stand firm against deception and help us to stand firm in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.